gospel lesson is found in Mark chapter 6. We're reading from verses 1 through 31. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. you were outdone by a child. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we give thanks and we rejoice, for this is your truth that you have revealed to us, and we ask now that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. It's an 11th century fable. We don't know the exact truth of the story, but yet it's a great story, has inspired literature, movies, storytelling of children. It's an awesome story, Robin Hood. The setting is England in the 12th century. It's a story of King Richard who's gone off to war and Prince John who takes the throne. John begins to administer and run the kingdom as he wished. It was against King Richard's policies. John was a deviant man. He was selfish, and he taxed the people heavily. The whole system was corrupt that John built. And so a small band, a company of people, began to devote themselves to undoing John. They were the loyalist of King Richard. They gathered in Nottingham Forest. They lived as a company together, and they lived awaiting the day of Richard's return. It began to be rumored, it was whispered that Richard had landed, that the king was finally home. And what now would happen? Prince John had claimed sovereign authority over the kingdom, but yet the true king was back. He had returned to his realm. Obviously, there were a lot of different reactions. There were some who just simply sided with John. They benefited from the system, the graft, and no matter what happened, they were going to be in it with John and go down with him. There were a few who went out into the forest and joined Robin Hood and his company. They were a scraggly bunch, though. They lived a meager life but people joined their company and said, we are with you and with King Richard. But for most, they were caught somewhere in the middle, wondering exactly what to make of it and wanting to see how things were going to play out before they got too committed. What were they going to do about this whole contest between John and Richard? And in Mark 6, Mark lets us as the church know the context of our own mission. And it's so similar to the story of Robin Hood and the different responses to the announcement that King Richard has returned. Because John the Baptist was the herald of the gospel. He was announcing that the God of the gospel, the good news that creation was now being renewed through God's rightful king was returning. It was breaking into the world. And then Jesus began preaching this good news, and he sends out his disciples to do so. And friends, today that is us sent to the world. And we learn in this important chapter, in this first half in chapter 6, what the context of our own mission is and how people will respond to the gospel. Because some will be all against it. They simply will have nothing to do with it. It's like Jesus' very hometown, Nazareth. They thought he was crazy. He said, isn't that Mary's boy? (laughs) Who does he think he is? (laughs) You know, they just completely dismissed it. And then obviously Jesus has loyalists, people who he sends out as his apostles. He sends them out into the world. And then you have Herod. And Herod is an intriguing case for us. 
because here he imprisons John the Baptist, and Mark gives us a flashback. He flashes back into the time when Herod imprisoned John the Baptist, and then look at Herod's response to John's preaching of the gospel. In verse 20, it says, when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. And Mark, in his own way, is preparing us for as we are sent out by Jesus, what kind of responses will we receive in the world? Because it is that great middle ground that most of the world occupies. Not simply jumping on the bandwagon with Jesus and going out to Nottingham Forest, and not simply joining Prince John, but lying somewhere in between, greatly perplexed, and yet hearing him gladly. And how are we to live inside of this mission? And why is that? Why is it that people are greatly perplexed by the message of the gospel? And why is it that they would still hear it gladly? We learn two things from Herod. But the main sum of it is that Herod is interested in the gospel. He's just simply not compelled by it. He's interested by it. He's a fan of John and his preaching. He's hearing about Jesus. He knows something new has entered into the world. But he's not a follower. He's not going to devote himself to it. And there's two ways that this same dynamic works itself out around us. And the first is this, is that first, some don't desire to turn from the selfish patterns of behavior that, the, that deny the way of God in his new world. We have to remember the context of the gravity of what was being announced, that God was intervening in history. He was bringing an entire new world to birth through this Messiah, that everything in creation was now changing. John announces this to Herod. Herod is intrigued. He knew the Jewish scriptures. He understood the promises. He even somehow seems to believe that John was a prophet of God, speaking the truth. He's perplexed. He doesn't know what to do with this. And he hears him gladly. And why is that? Well, John was confronting Herod. Herod had taken his half-brother's wife, Herodias, and taken her as his own wife. And so she already had a family, and it caused quite a political scandal in the ancient world, but he took her for his own. And John, when he comes preaching the gospel, doesn't leave anything outside. That Herod's patterns of life, his sexual behaviors, were selfish, and they included his own interest. And he had stolen his own brother's wife and taken her for his own. And that this was not the way of life in God's new world that was being born in Jesus of Nazareth. That it was opposed to God's way. That Herod needed to be forgiven and he needed to write his life. Not to earn his way into heaven, but to bring it into keeping with heaven's new way on the earth. And so John was telling him, it's not lawful. And so John... And so Herod put John in prison. He wanted to contain him. He needed to control him. He would still listen to him, but he needed him to be quiet because he was causing him problems. And friends, that middle ground where we're perplexed by Jesus, 
We're often tempted to occupy that because the kingdom of God and the announcement of Jesus' reign over all things threatens our own sovereignty and control. The selfish patterns of life, the behaviors that we so often cling to that define us are suddenly being ripped from our grasp, and so we cling to them all the more. This is what we see in Herod. He is a desperate man being confronted in his whole lifestyle, in, right in his family, and he doesn't want to let go. And so he will gladly hear this gospel, and he doesn't know what to do with it at all. When I first arrived in, in Washington and we were planting a church, we were meeting in a, in a small house, had two rooms that we sat catty corner in, and this core group of people began to form as we uh, started our Bible studies. And I remember in that first summer, there was a young man who came, and he said, I would like to go to lunch with you. It was his first meeting that he had arrived at. He said, there are several things I'd like to talk to you about. And so we go to lunch, and then for the first 30 minutes of our lunch, he instructed me about how glad he was to be a part of this newly forming community and also how wrong we were. It was one of the most intriguing conversations. I still remember the table and the restaurant we sat at because he was perplexed and I was perplexed. And it came down to that he just simply didn't believe that we could say that the Scriptures were inspired by God, that God speaks through the Bible and he said, it's not reliable, it's not accurate, and he presented arguments and threw out facts and figures and some different scriptures. And so for a few minutes, I asked him a couple of counter questions, and I saw that that wasn't going anywhere. And finally, I just said, I said, look, you know, some of the opinions you've expressed today, a lot of those things have been dismissed. Um, not even liberal scholars buy into them anymore. And, you know, but my experience anyway has been that facts and arguments typically don't win the day on this issue. Said normally is something incredibly personal. And so he went on to say, yes, you know what? I just don't agree at all with the Bible's teaching on sexuality. I was like, well, now we're talking. <laughs> now we have something substantive to talk about. And friends, that's what so often happens in our world as we minister the gospels. What happens inside of our own hearts as well is that we resist God's way in the world and all that he's revealed to us and all that the gospel is bringing because it's simply too threatening. It will take something away from us that we cherish. That God calling us to a non-selfish life, to a life interested in others, to a life of self-sacrifice for the sake of others, that that simply is threatening. It means that our sex lives don't get to be what we want them to be. It means that our money is not just ours. It means that our time doesn't just belong to us. It has enormous implications. And Herod, friends, was feeling it. And so he was perplexed. He was paralyzed. And yet he would hear the gospel gladly. And this is the first way that this same dynamic works itself out in our world today. And the second is this, is that some will care more for their own honor and reputation than God's reign and purposes. Herod throws an elaborate party. It's a sensual environment. It's a debaucherous one. It's not a pleasant scene that's painted for us here. 
when his daughter, who is a daughter that was adopted, is brought out to dance. That has every connotation that you can imagine. And she's brought out before the military commanders and the leading men of Galilee, the nobles. She dances and pleases Herod and the company, and he promises up to half his kingdom because of the way that she satisfied him. And so she goes back to her mother. Her mother hated John the Baptist, and she wanted John's head. And so the girl goes back and requests the head of John the Baptist. And then what we read is so interesting in verse 26. And the king, this is Herod, was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guest, he did not want to break his word to her. In this culture, honor and shame were everything. And to be shamed publicly was the greatest insult that you could receive. And to not make good on your word or your promise was the way and the path to ultimate shame. And so here he is in front of this great company that he has made this lavish, ridiculous promise to. And now he has to fulfill his word. And so he was exceedingly sorry. But yet he went through with what he had promised. And you look at Herod and you simply say, this makes no sense. Makes no sense at all. But he was a man devoted to his own honor. He was devoted to his own reputation. It wasn't about to allow God and his reign and his purposes that were being realized through John and through Jesus to interfere with his own reputation. That was not going to happen. He would do wrong, but he would not suffer shame. And friends, that's the way that great middle ground still plays itself out in the world today where we're more willing to protect ourselves, our name, our reputation, because it costs us to be identified with the gospel. That's the radical group that lives out in Nottingham Forest. A little too serious. The super-Christians. We don't want to get too extreme about this thing. We like our religion, but it has its confines, proper confines. It needs to stay safe. And we ultimately don't want our selfish patterns of life that we, all have communic- uh, that we all have collected over time. We don't want those challenged. And so we want to hold off God's new way of life that calls us to live centered upon others. That's what all the commandments are about, loving your neighbor. And so we hold it off. And so we can be interested in Jesus. And we can be thoroughly non-committed to him as well. And that is that dangerous middle ground that Herod represents. It's oftentimes easier to have it on the poles and the extremes, but life is lived in the messy middle so often. And this is the context that Jesus sends his disciples out into. Notice at the beginning of chapter 6 in verses 1 through 6, Jesus goes home to Nazareth. He's rejected. The people don't accept him. Then he sends out his disciples, sends them out to preach the gospel. And then Mark backtracks and tells us the story 
about John the Baptist's death. And then in verse 30, it says the apostles returned to Jesus, so we're back in real time, and told him all that they had done and taught. And what Mark is doing for us here is he's setting the stage for what it looks like to minister the gospel. That what we can expect is we can expect rejection. That we can expect acceptance. That we can expect that perplexity that fills the middle ground. That this is the context in which God's people will continue to work. And the question is, is what do we need What do we need in the midst of that place where there's acceptance, where there's rejection, where there's perplexity? What is it that we need from God in order to sustain that work of being sent out into the world? There's two things. The first is simply this, is that we have to be ready for rejection. Jesus says this, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Jesus was conditioning the disciples to understand that not everyone is going to love your message, that it's going to interfere with their lives, and some will reject it. They will have nothing to do with you. And he says, shake it off. Taylor Swift has written a song about this as well. That we need to be prepared about for that. That it's simply part of life. And if we get our own personal self-worth caught up in that, then we're going to have a very low personal self-worth. That whether everyone likes us and whether everyone agrees with us, then it's going to be very hard to honor this Jesus we'll become much like Herod and we'll be caught up in protecting our own name and reputation rather than the name, the reputation, and the purposes of God. Several years ago, I had a friend who was a a young rising attorney um, in the uh, general attorney's office there. And uh, he was arguing a big case and he was representing the United States government. And so he invited me to come and see because they didn't very often argue cases on the floor of the court. And so it was a great morning, went in and saw my friend arguing a case in front of these, this panel of judges. And it was so interesting because he was winning the case, and yet at one point he repeated something that he had said multiple times, and the judge interrupted him and brought down the hammer on him and said, I do not know why the government continues to make this case over and over. We have ruled that that is not proper nor correct. And I don't want you to say it again. And so, my friend being the good lawyer, said it again. That is the government's position. That is how he finished the sentence. And so, after the trial, which he did win, I asked him, I said, what was that little show all about? (laughs) And he said, well, you know, my bosses instruct me about what I am to say the government's position is. I can't take it personally. I can't go in and have my self-worth tied up in whether the judge likes what I say. I'm simply to be a representative. I'm to be an ambassador of the government in the courtroom. That's my job and the task that they give me at that moment. It was impressive. And he was willing to get hammered five times (laughs) by this judge (laughs) and not take it personally. 
And friends, your God asks you the same thing. Are you willing to be his ambassador? Are you willing to go out? And at times, it will mean rejection. You'll have to shake it off. You'll have to shake off the dust. you have to look beyond it, knowing that your faith doesn't depend upon the acceptance of others, that it's rooted in the reality of Jesus' death, of his resurrection, of his being installed as king and Lord, ruler over all things, who's reconciling all things to himself. That's where your confidence is. And then you just need to know that there will be some who just simply reject. And so be ready for the rejection. The second thing is, though, is that amidst all this rejection and hardship, we also have to commune with Jesus. It's important always to remember what Jesus does in verse 30 and 31. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Several years ago when I lived in Memphis, I remember going through my first phase of what you would just call ministry burnout. I was tired. I'd experienced some hardship. There were some different things going on, success and failures, and just all the gamut of emotions that can go on. And I remember going to my mentor, Tim Russell, and asking him, say, Tim, what do I do? I'm so discouraged on one hand. I'm encouraged on the other. I'm an emotional basket case. I don't know what to make of it. And so he asked me a couple of questions. He said, well, have you slept? I said, no. Are you praying? No. (laughs) I'm too busy. (laughs) And uh, he referred me back to the story in 1 Kings 19 about Elijah, when Elijah was on the run from Jezebel. And uh, God takes him away to a desolate place. Elijah says, I want to (laughs) die. Why why do you leave me out like that? And I remember reading those words resonating with them, thinking, gosh, that sounds so good. And Elijah's under a broom tree, and he says, "Just, just take me now. And then God brings Elijah a meal, and, uh, and he gets two really solid nights of rest. And so my mentor looked at me. He said, Chuck, go out to a meal. Here's some money, and get some sleep, and then come talk to me again. And what he was instructing me to do as well was also to rest, get my head on straight, return to Scripture, return to prayer, reorient myself to God. And friends, that's what's desperately needed. When we're in this arduous road where much is being asked of us, where there is rejection, where there's perplexity, where there are opponents, where there is success, we need Jesus We need to pull away with Him. We need to rest. We need times of worship and communion for Him to breathe life into us, to feed us, to strengthen us. And this morning, we come to this table just for that to happen, that God would strengthen us, that He would confirm His promises to us, that He would fill us with the life of the risen Jesus as we eat and feast in faith. That's what He offers to us vital strength for the journey. He doesn't feed you because you're full. He feeds you because you're hungry and you need it. And you need to draw down strength from Christ for His work in the world today. Because, friends, that's the context we live. There's King Richard, 
and there's Prince John, and there's a great middle, and people attempting to hedge their bets and figure out where they will line up, and God calls us to be His faithful coming, uh, His faithful company, proclaiming His coming, that the King is here. The victory belongs to Him. And friend, you need the King's strength. You need to commune with Him as you walk His path and His road in the world.